Well, this is the fifth of these talks on the Beatitudes, and we've got as far as, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew chapter 5. And you remember that in the other Beatitudes, I sort of a sort of worldly Beatitude as opposed to the Gospel. And I wonder what was the sort of worldly wisdom which would people would sort of place against our Beatitude of the Gospel. And I found this one more difficult than most, but what I got was this. Blessed are the worldly wise, for they shall not be caught out. <laughs> I thought in the beginning, blessed are the worldly wise, for they shall have their feet on the ground. Anyhow, I think called out is better. Because you see, if you're merciful to people, then you think people are, well, you're just hooked, you're caught, you're, uh, they put one over you. Now, an important part of the good news of the Gospel is that God is merciful. Thank God for that. That's why we can smile and be happy tonight. Not because we're worthy, not because we can do anything in our own righteousness or self, but because God is merciful. You know, there's that beautiful psalm, isn't there, in the Old Testament, which goes on verse after verse, verse for his mercy endures forever. And uh, something we need to remember, it goes on repeating it, and it's good that we often repeat that to ourselves. But turning to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God is rich in mercy. And because of that, when we are dead, he makes us alive. And Titus chapter 3, He, God, saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy. And 1 Peter chapter 1, By his great mercy we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. His great mercy. Thank God we can totally depend on his mercy, his great mercy for salvation. And that's why we can be hopeful, because his mercy goes on. And I'll just make this point. It isn't as if God, you know, extended his mercy to us and lifted us out of paganism and sin into Christianity and then left us to get on with it on our own because that's all, you know, we'd been given his mercy and now it was up to us. No, you know, from now on to the end of your days, my days, we are totally dependent on his mercy to arrive in heaven. Not just his mercy lifted us up into the Christian faith, his mercy is necessary and needed to take us to the rest of the road too. And if ever we think we can do the rest of our, the road in our own strength, then we can be about to collapse. We are dependent on his mercy for salvation always and to the last moment. And if it's the last half hour of your life, you're still dependent on his mercy to get into heaven, to get through that half hour. But thank God, his mercy will be always there, and we can totally depend on it. Therefore, we can rejoice and be happy. And I think we're dependent not only on his mercy for salvation, but also for life itself. You know, we only continue in being through his creative presence within us, for his creative love working in us. Not only that applies to the individual, it applies to creation as a whole. 
So you see, we are totally dependent on his loving mercy, you know, that life goes on. Not just for salvation, but for life going on. So there is no self-salvation. And whenever we begin to approach self-salvation, we collapse. Because then it's pride and we take it to ourselves, we take the credit to ourselves and we trust in our own righteousness. And once we start moving in that direction, we're in for trouble. And the Lord normally allows us in his mercy to collapse a bit so that we mend our ways and turn to him and rely totally on him and not on ourselves. And that applies for life in itself and our needs in life. Obviously we have to work, obviously we have to plan, but all that against the background of total depending on the mercy and love and providing of God. Remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. And the Pharisee prayed and thanked God that he wasn't like other people, particularly the tax collector. And the tax collector was unable, felt unable to look up to heaven, but just said, God be merciful to me a sinner. Now we never get beyond that prayer in this life. We should never become so holy, so good, so virtuous that we don't need to say that. God be merciful to me a sinner. If everything you're outgrowing that, beware. <laughs> God be merciful to me a sinner. I think it's a prayer which should be often on our lips. And so often, you see, we find ourselves, God be merciful on Mrs. Jones, she's a sinner. <laughs> God be merciful on my brother. Oh, but in fact, you see, it's God be merciful on me, a sinner. And when we start concentrating on God's, other people's need for God's mercy for salvation and forgetting our own, again, we're getting things out of perspective and preparing ourselves for a fall. And incidentally, we're not only totally dependent on God's mercy, but we're dependent on the mercy of other people. You know, we're called to be merciful to others. Because God is merciful to us, we're called to be merciful to others like as God himself is merciful to us. But we are also dependent on the mercy of other people in a different sense, but nevertheless a very real sense. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, other people have to put up with the quirks and the corners and difficult temperament and failures and weaknesses of Don Benedict. You see? And uh, I'm dependent on their forgiveness, their love, their understanding, their smile, their tolerance. I'm dependent on their mercy. So how, one, what excuse have I never, what excuse have I ever for not being merciful to others and understanding in that way, if not only I'm, am I totally dependent on the mercy of God, but I'm also on the dependent on the mercy of others. You know, so often we see the moat in the other person's eyes, the plank in their eye, and at least the, 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 we, sorry, the, the splinter in their eye, we see the splinter in their eye, and we forget the plank in our own. We are all dependent on the mercy and goodness and understanding of other people too. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Mercy in the first place from God, that's the main one of course, but also the mercy and understanding of other people. The parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 helps us here too. You remember that the unmerciful servant, you know, was strangling his fellow servant and wanted to put him into jail. Well, he was, first of all, he was given a great sum of money by the Lord, his Lord, and then he refused to give someone else. And the Lord says this, 
You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the Lord had forgiven him a great deal, and he was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant a small amount. And isn't our position really that? God has forgiven us a great deal. He died for our sins. He's given, forgiven our original sin. He's forgiven us everything. And nothing which we're ever called to forgive anyone else is anything like that. It's all small in comparison to what we've been forgiven. His mercy has been so wonderful, so forgiving, so extraordinary, that anything we're called to forgive is relatively small by comparison. Now, an important part of our exercise of mercy is forgiving others. In that parable it talked about forgiving their debt. You know, I'm not going to talk at length about forgiveness because we've done that before, but when we fail to forgive other people, we bind them in a certain sense. And when we forgive them, we unloosen them. And that's a great thing, you know, we're called to loosen people. And forgiveness is a very important expression of mercy. And we're called to go on forgiving an infinite number of times. We never have a valid excuse for not forgiving someone. Never. Jesus always forgives when we repent. We always are called to forgive. Under every circumstance, Jesus forgave the people who killed him. We never have an excuse for not forgiving fully. And I want to mention a thing which I think is important about forgiveness. Very often we concentrate in forgiveness on forgiving things of the past. You know, when we're praying for inner healing, we realize that we've got to forgive wounds and hurts which we've received in the past. And that is very right, and that is very necessary. But there's another aspect we need to be aware of, that is the importance of ongoing forgiveness ongoing mercy in our difficult relationships. Now it's normal that we have difficult relationships in life. And if you never had a difficult relationship, how would you ever practice the virtue of forgiveness? How would you ever practice the virtue of praying for those who persecute you, of loving your enemy, those who hurt you? It's normal that there's someone difficult in your life. And normally when one goes, another rises before long. And you wouldn't grow much in the Christian life if they didn't turn up. Thank God that they're there, so that you can learn to follow Jesus in the way of love and forgiveness and praying for the enemy. And you see, in these sort of situations, you know, I mean, you will go on being hurt, right? You were hurt last week, and you'll be hurt next week, probably, and the week after. And we've got to go on forgiving, and we've got to prepare ourselves to forgive for the future. And it's very often people who are close to us, husbands, wives, children, bosses, neighbours, and so on. And of course, not only have we got to forgive them and have mercy on them, they've got to forgive us. So it's not just a one-way <laughs> one traffic, you know. And we should prepare ourselves for that and be ready to do that. So think of the difficult relationships in your life, or those which may come round the corner next week, and prepare yourself to go on loving and forgiving and being merciful. To go on and on and on. That's part of it. Blessed are the merciful. Not blessed are those who are merciful about the offences of the past and not about the future. 
Not blessed are the merciful you know, when they forgive, forgive up to ten times, but that's enough. But on and on indefinitely. You've got to go on being merciful and to prepare ourselves for that. And think of your difficult relationships. And just prepare yourself to go on being merciful forgiveness for as long as that relationship remains there and difficult. And if that's the end of your life, praise God, then you go on doing the same. And if this relationship t goes away, well, another one will come before very long because that's what following Jesus in this life involves. Now, another way in which I think we need to be merciful is in our judgments of people. Where we frequently go wrong is in harsh, unloving, untrue, bitter, resentful, sometimes jealous and angry judgments of people. And we're all doing it pretty frequently, being sinners. You know, it's extraordinary how you find yourself caught out sometimes. You know, somebody's done something and all these thoughts go around in your mind of bitterness and resentment and so on. And then you learn afterwards some, some circumstances which change the whole situation. How often does that arise in your life? It arrives in mine from time to time. Not too rarely. You know, we've been bitter and resentful, we've misjudged them, we've misunderstood the circumstances, we've put the worst interpretation on it, we've absolutely assumed they did it for wrong motives and lack of love, we knew that because we knew them, and we discovered we were wrong. And you know, it frequently happens when we don't discover we're wrong, but we are wrong. So we've really got to be merciful in our judgments about people. And that's very difficult to do sometimes. Not to put the worst interpretation on it, not to assume the bad motives, not to assume they're doing it to get at us, not to assume that it's a result of their sinfulness or their weakness. We need to be very much more careful about our negative judgments of people. There's where mercy is demanded from each one of us. Much more merciful in our judgments of others. And another thing I want to say about our, our mercy towards other people, the danger of selective mercy for people or for categories of people. You know, some people find it easier to be merciful or understand to one sex rather than the other. One race rather than other races. You know, some people find it very difficult to be merciful and unloving and understanding of certain other races. They treat them as second-class human beings. Religions. Thank God that's probably better than it was, but perhaps if we were in Northern Ireland today, we wouldn't think that. You know, many people in our Northern, many Catholics in Northern Ireland find it very difficult to be loving, merciful and understanding and forgiving of Protestants. Many Protestants in Northern Ireland find it very difficult to be loving, merciful and understanding and forgiving of Roman Catholics. That's where we are. And it's extraordinary, you know, you can get somebody who really is very loving and caring within their own group. You know, you've known them in their group and you say, what a splendid person and how caring they were and how thoughtful and how forgiving and all that. And then bring someone of another group along and it's just a shattering difference. Absolutely awful. Wipe them out. You know, you can get that from nationality too. Quite a number of people in this country after the war found it very difficult to be loving, understanding, merciful towards Germans or Japanese. Couldn't face them, couldn't see them, hated them. It may be other sort of things, sometimes it's age groups. Some people have a facility 
of being merciful and loving and understanding of young people, but can't stand the aged. <laughs> or they can't stand the aged, but don't like the young. Somebody was telling me something about monastic communities the other day. They said, you're often with the old monks. It wasn't this monastery. <laughs> <laughs> the old monks often have a good relationship with the young ones, but the middle-aged have a good relationship with neither. Well, <laughs> at least, you know, there can be all sorts of natural things which affect people and make it more difficult. And it's good to be aware of these difficulties. You know, it may, some people find it very difficult to be merciful and understanding of alcoholics drug addicts, rapists. Some particular cap you know, category of offender gets them. Others, well, they're quite tolerant about, but that, no. Some people find it very difficult to be loving and understanding of capitalists and others of communists. And sometimes it's just a matter of individual. For some reason or other, that person gets on your goat and all your judgments and thoughts are harsh and difficult and bitter and resentful and negative and it goes on round and round. And that other person, you see, in fact, you excuse all they do and you see all they see in a rosy light and you'll tolerate anything from them. But what we have to try and do, blessed are the merciful, also to those we don't like, those we find difficult, those we find it difficult to put up with, those we can't stand at the human level. And so perhaps that's where we need to concentrate, on those we find it most difficult. Though most difficult. You know, if you find it very difficult to be merciful to your daughter but not to your son, well, concentrate on the son. Now, our mercy will be shown in forgiving people, loving people, helping people, praying for people. Now, we can or always should forgive, love, and pray for people. We cannot always give everyone practical aid, material help. We can't, obviously. For instance, there are hundreds of wonderful charities, all very deserving. You can't support each one. There are masses of beggars who you will meet if you walk about London for half a day. You can't finance each one. You know, and what are we going to do about this? Well, some people make an excuse. They say, well, you can't give to them all, so they give to none. <laughs> I suggest that's a cop-out. Uh, what we have to ask, ask God to show us whom are the people he wants us to help, practically, materially. You know, I'm surely all of us should normally put aside a certain <coughs> amount of material aid for the really needy. Now, some, it may be more the third world abroad, and others, it may be more the third world in London. People who are sleeping out or whatever. But ask God to show us. And the fact that we can't do it to all, don't let that be an excuse for doing it to no one. And part of being merciful, I think, is to live simply so that we have something to give to others. To live simply, a simple lifestyle, so that we have something to give to others. That can be part of being merciful. And also, working to get money to give to others can be part of being merciful. But I think a very important thing is this. Even where we can't help people materially, don't let's forget to be kind to them and understanding. And you know, that can make all the difference. 
Now, one of my friends, who's a gentleman of the road, whom I pray over frequently, um, you know, he talks to me about it, and he tells me one of the things which is so difficult for him, that wherever you go, you feel everybody is looking down on you. They can see from your appearance, your clothes, your hair, your face, your shoes, your everything, that you're down and out, and they just feel despised. And you know, that's perhaps the most painful side of it. Sometimes that's more painful than you know, doing with, the being without much in the way of material things. It's being an outcast. And the way people pass you on the pavement, or just walk that further away from you on the pavement to avoid you, the way they smile or don't smile at you, or look down at you, or joke about you. And so one of the things we can do and should do, in our, as part of being merciful, is really to try to be loving and kind to people like that, even when you can't help them materially. Say a few words to them, talk with them, ask them how they are, chat about things, go and sit next to them in the tube instead of as far away as you can. And I think that's very important. And pray for them. You know, we really should pray much more for the, the people in need we see. You see a drunk man in the road, pray for him. You may not, it may not be right to stop, you may not be the right person to talk to him. It may not be possible, you may have just seen him from the bus in any case. Pray for him, the drunk, the blind man, pray for him. The invalid, pray for him. The woman with a handicapped child, pray for the child and pray for the mother. You know, we often see really needy people about, don't we? Pray for them. Even when we can't help them in other ways, our mercy can show itself in praying for them. And I think we ought to do much more of that. And that includes, incidentally, praying for the people in a famine-stricken Africa when we see it on TV or when we read about it in the newspapers. Now another point, mercy does not mean softness of the wrong kind. To say someone is merciful, it doesn't mean that you always say yes to people, that you always give way to people. It often means that we give way to people, but not always. There's a place for and a need for firmness at times. And you don't always help somebody when you give, give them money. You know, outside Westminster Cathedral, there's a whole bunch of alcoholics who live off the money people give them. I don't know whether it happens outside the Methodist Town Hall, you know, or the Methodist Central Hall. It does outside the Catholic one, anyhow. And uh, one of those people out there, somebody came out of the cathedral not very long ago and they were feeling very sort of moved in the spirit to help and they gave him a good sum of money and he went and drank it and died on the spot. It's not always helpful to be soft in that sort of way. Sometimes we need to be firm. You know, God is also a God of righteousness. He's a God of love and of mercy, but of righteousness. And sometimes we have to be firm with people, and sometimes we have to tell people where they're getting off. But we have to do that with love and forgiveness, and you can be firm with mercy. And you know, people can feel sometimes that you're loving and merciful, even when you are firm. They can feel the difference, even when you're having to take a fairly strong line with them. They can feel the difference, whether you're doing it with love or you're not doing it with love. So even when we have to be firm with, 
firm with mercy and love. Now I want to say another thing about mercy. Some people might feel, oh I just can't stand that person or that category of people. I find it very difficult in my feelings. I don't feel merciful towards them, loving towards them. I'm failing and I can't do otherwise. And I want to say that mercy is not basically a matter of feelings. Loving is not basically a matter of feelings. It's a matter of the will. It may be much more a question of how in practice you, you help someone, that may be the test of your mercy, rather than your feelings, emotional feelings towards them. You may be very merciful and yet not be feeling like it. And you may be feeling quite gushy, but if you don't actually help them, you're not being merciful. So, it's not a question in the first place of feeling, it's a question of the will. Being merciful in the will and in the actions, in your actions. Not in the first place in your feelings. Now you may have wonderfully merciful feelings and that's a blessing if you do. And you may be feeling very angry and you obviously need to try and overcome that anger. You know, I understand that even very loving mothers, when their child has woken up for the twentieth time in the night, sometimes feel like throttling it. <laughs> now, the test is, not what they do, what they feel like, but what they do, they take the child up, they cuddle it, they, 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 they caress it and so on. They may be feeling just the opposite, but the test of their love, of their mercy, is their action, not their feelings. Just one morning, one warning, there can be a certain presumption of a certain kind over God's mercy. You know, some people can say, it doesn't matter if I go on committing adultery, God is, well, is merciful and will forgive. It doesn't matter if I go on peddling drugs, God is merciful and God forgives. Yes, God forgives, but he forgives people who repent. And we may not use the mercy and love of God as an excuse for not trying to be righteous ourselves. Notice I say not trying, I don't say not succeeding. None of us succeed all that well, and certainly not at times. But we've got to be trying to obey his law and to be righteous. So we may not, because God is love and merciful, we may not presume and say, it doesn't matter, I can just take things easily, I don't have to try to be righteous and fulfill his commands. But then I want to say something which is perhaps even more important. Never despair of God's mercy, forgiveness. You know, one does meet a certain number of Christians, people who have been perhaps very regular churchgoers, who have a real problem about God and judgment. And sometimes, I mean, they're really horrified and terrified. And uh, they really lost faith in his mercy. And people really need to know, doesn't matter, I say to people, if your sins were a million times worse, if your sins had been a million times worse, and you authentically repent, and God will always give you the grace to repent, your sins are blotted out. So, uh, you have never any reason to have that sort of despair of God's mercy. If you repent, if you really want to go the right way, despite your weakness, if you really want to go in the right way, I don't even say go the right way, if you want to go the right way, despite your weakness, and you repent, God will forgive and you can count on his mercy and love. And that is a problem for quite a number of people. I heard of a very sad case yesterday, and perhaps you could pray too. A woman, a married woman in her early forties, I never met her, uh, I shan't give you a name, not living in this district, 
you know, she had problems about forgiveness and she felt she'd been too wicked and so on. Although, in fact, she was very really a practicing Christian, going to church and had never done anything awful at all, but it's often those people who are caught. And she really, you know, felt despairing about that. And then she heard voices, and the voices at one stage told her to take an overdose, and she did, but that didn't prove fatal. And two days ago, the voices in a psychiatric hospital, the voices she heard, told her to burn herself, and she set fire to herself, and now is desperately burned. Now, there apparently, perhaps in the background of all that, I say apparently, but it might well be, you know, somebody who couldn't believe in the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, and other things took over. So could we just remember that person? Let's just say a prayer for that person at this moment. Lord, we just forgiveness. Never let your mercy for others dry up. We must be people of mercy to the end. Even the time may come when it's n your right to no longer give somebody money, when you're no longer, when your right to no longer give, give them practical help. But never give up on your love and mercy for people. Never. That loving, merciful heart, always, so to speak, fills with the grace of God, with the compassion of Jesus for other people. We're called to be m people who are basically merciful in that way, at all times and in all places. We may not be able to express our mercy in some practical ways always, but we must always have a merciful heart and mind in our relationship with others. And right to the end, right to the end of a difficult relationship, right to the end of our own lives. Never give up. And not only are we called to have this mercy, we are called to grow in mercy. We are called to grow in mercy. We are called to become more and more merciful in our heart and mind and in our life towards others. And there's need for growth for all of us. And you know, I think of a beautiful thing, you know, as through God's grace and gift, we grow in mercy. And the mercy of Jesus is reflected more and more in our lives. So the mercy of God will descend more and more on us. So the mercy of God will come down on us. You know, we need his mercy. I'd be very worried if there was anybody here who didn't think they needed his mercy. I'd be very worried if there's anybody here who didn't even think they desperately needed his mercy, because we all do. We all need his mercy, ongoing mercy at all times, you see. But as through his grace, we're able to be merciful to others. You know, it says somewhere in the New Testament, love covers a multitude of sins, mercy covers a multitude of sins. As through God's grace, we're able to be merciful to others, so his mercy comes down on us. And I want to close with this reading from... 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And let us remember, let us never forget that he is the Father of mercies. That's why Christianity is such wonderful good news, because it tells us that God is the Father of mercies. That's why we can be smiling, and Isaac can be smiling away there, not because he's a good chap at all, but because he knows God is the Father of mercies. And that's for all of us. And we know not only that God is the Father of mercies, but that we are called to be sons of mercy, daughters of mercy. Amen. Here is among the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God.
And you remember the other Beatitudes, we put aside, beside them, so to speak, the Beatitude of the world, the Beatitude of the world in opposition to the, that of the Gospel. And it seems to me that what the world is saying, blessed are the permissive, so they, for they shall have a whale of a time. <laughs> of course, the world does, in fact, it finds that the whale of a time is a disaster when they get AIDS or something else. But anyhow, that's what the world says. Blessed are the permissive, for they shall have a whale of a time. Now, Jesus is contrasting the legal purity of the Pharisees with the purity of the heart. And I think we get a little further understanding on this if I read from Matthew 15. You see, remember the legal purity of the Jews contained a multitude of prohibitions which you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that, and if you did, you were legally impure. For instance, I mean, many foods were taboo. If you ate many foods, you were impure. If by mistake you walked on a grave, you were impure. Uh, if you touched a corpse, you were impure. I mean, there were numerous things. If you didn't wash your hands before a meal, you were impure. And that's where we start on Matthew 15. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash, wash their hands when they eat. I'm not going to read the whole of it, but it goes on a bit later. And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And then a bit later again, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what define a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defy the man. So Jesus is contrasting the legal purity of the Pharisees with the purity of the heart. And we see that the purity of the heart is something, of course, much wider than chastity, but includes chastity. Jesus talked there about theft, about murder, many things like that, but also about fornication and adultery. Now, I think purity of the heart involves right intentions, right motives, and a basic uprightness. <coughs> now, it's sometimes obvious that we are lacking purity of heart, that someone is lacking purity of heart. Uh, for instance, I mean, if somebody spends their time trying to mug old ladies and steal their ham handbags, Obviously, there's not impurity of heart. Or if somebody's trying to run, run a brothel, there's not purity of heart. And we all fail at times in purity of heart, and we're aware of our failures. But often we are unaware of our lack of purity of heart. And I want to perhaps go into this bit a bit more. You know, you don't look the sort of people who go around mugging old ladies. But we all suffer from this difficulty of mixed motives. We lack purity of heart. We are unaware of our mixed motives, of our real intentions. For instance, we do something thinking that we're doing it to help others. Well, in fact, we can also be doing it, or even mainly be doing it, for selfish motives. 
to please ourselves or self-esteem. Let's just think, for instance, of a few examples of purity of heart, purity of intention in family life or in community life. You know, people can sometimes buy a present for someone and they think or pretend they bought it for that person, but they really bought it for themselves. How many fathers have bought toys for their sons? This toy rather than that, because they wanted to have a go at it themselves. Or arranging holidays. We must take our child's own, though it's good for their health. The real motive can sometimes be, you know, that they want to go there themselves. And that can apply to a lot of ways of spending money, can't it? You know, we can justify spending money for this good reason, for that good reason, when there can be quite a selfish motive behind it. Or, for instance, wanting one's children to succeed, and I wrote the word succeed here in inverted commas. You know, people sometimes push their children to have successful worldly careers, sometimes it ends up in suicide or breakdowns and all sorts of things. And it isn't rarely that father loved his son so much that he wanted him every blessing in this life, but father, he liked the idea, he was proud of the thought he had a son who does this or that or the other. So he pushed his sons, sometimes to disaster. There can be lack of purity of heart there. Or there can be in relationships. You know, someone can spend a lot of time with someone else because they think they're helping them, or they say they're helping them, but in fact it may be because they find them rather sexually attractive. There can be all sorts of ways in which we can lack, I mean, without being aware of it often, purity of heart. And we, ask, we need to ask the Lord to show us where we're failing in this, to show us where we're deceiving ourselves and others. We need to do that. And, of course, those of us involved in charismatic renewal and in the ministry of ministries of charismatic renewal, we can also lack purity of heart and honest intentions there. We can have mixed motives when we're not aware of them. And I'm going to tell you what happened to me once. This was a number of years ago, and we had our first evangelism outing from this church. And we did it together with Southgate Christian Fellowship on a Saturday afternoon. And we arranged that we would all meet, members of the Southgate Christian Fellowship who were used to this, and those of us of our prayer group who weren't, we'd meet in the room upstairs, and two-thirds would go out on the road, and one-third would stay behind to pray. And I thought that was an excellent idea. And I was convinced that my duty as host meant that I should stay behind. <laughs> and I remember it was Pat, Pat Briskin who said, creep, creep, creep. <laughs> I found myself going out with the others. And then the others divided between those who stayed singing with Cormac and those who divided into pairs and went and gave leaflets to people. And I suddenly thought I had a magnificent voice, the strength of which <laughs> they couldn't do without. And I found myself giving out leaflets. Well, <laughs> you know, we can often lack a purity of heart, purity of intention. But you know, it can be, you know, in any ministry, I mean, the charismatic renewal or in our church, we can be doing it to some extent or largely for our own egos, to boost our own egos, to appear important, to attract the attention of other people, to be someone to compensate for our nothingness in other spheres in life. And none of us in any ministry has entirely pure motives, purity of heart. So all of us in every ministry 
we need to examine our motives and we need to purify our motives. And you know when your motives will be perfectly pure when you get to heaven. It's an ongoing process and for so many things, so many tasks in life, I'm not saying the, 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 the motive can be basically good, but there can be elements in that motive which are not good and they will spoil our ministry, they will hurt our ministry, they will make our ministry deviate. You know, there's one priest, an Anglican priest, who wrote in his book, and he was a great man, he's a man with a very great healing ministry, and they were, he went away with the team, and uh, it was going to be a great healing session, and the Lord said to him, let that lady lead it. And he didn't like it. He said, Lord, you can't mean that. And the Lord said, yes. So he did let the lady lead it. But he recognised in himself, he says this in the book, the fact that he found it so difficult to do that showed that he was in some way attached to his ministry in a way which wasn't of God. So there's that called for all of us for the ongoing purifying of motives, ongoing growth, impurity of heart. Now I want to speak a bit more about purity of heart in matters of sexual morality. We live in a decadent society. In many ways, as far as sexual morality is concerned, a really decadent society. And, uh, you know, we need to be aware that, you know, the, the standards of the Gospel are not those which surround us, not those which come to us through the media, not those which, you know, people, our neighbours and others, regard by now as more or less normal. We, and we need to stand up for Christian standards of morality and sexual matters and not be allowed ourselves to be dragged away by what others are doing and what is considered normal in the world. And you know, this shouldn't surprise us because this would have been true for the first generation of Christians. It would have been considerably more true for the first generations of Christians because the world into which the church was born was still more decadent sexually than we are today by a long way. You know, if you'd lived at Corinth, well, that was something much worse than, you know, London, even the centre of London. So, you know, they, they realise, you realise in becoming a Christian, you are following different standards, a different outlook, a different way of regarding the whole question of sexual morality. Now, there can be a danger of Christians compromising, compromising their Christian standards with those of the world. And you know, what Christians sometimes seem to be doing is instead of asking Jesus, what are you teaching? What is your teaching in this matter? Which we find basically in the, the New Testament and in the Christian tradition of the church. Instead of doing that, they say, well, what can you ask young people or other people to do today? What can you expect of them? It's no good asking too much. And you get that. Some people say, well, you... You know, in the world of today, you can't ask that of young people. It's asking too much. You can't ask young people to abstain from sex before marriage because, after all, that's asking too much today. You can't ask these people because they can't get married because there's no housing. So, what have you, inevitably, that's bound to happen. Or you get, you know, something's happened to the other partner and, well, you can't expect them not to find someone else. You know, I was told that in a hospital, in a, a ward where there are a lot of people with multiple sclerosis, 
After a time, nearly all the wives or husbands failed to visit their spouse anymore because they'd linked up with someone else. You know, you can't expect if their spouse is in hospital and has got this deteriorating disease and it's going to take years and years and years and go down, you can't expect them to not to link up with someone else. So they just forget the spouse in hospital. That is largely England, 1987. And you, oh no, you can't expect people to say no. But you know, why is it? You know, Whereas many people would, would agree that in other things you expect people to say no, no to stabbing someone in the back or pinching their bag, but you don't expect them to be able to say no to sexual matters, sexual temptations. But now Jesus, I mean Jesus didn't preach a religion in which we can't say no. You know, Jesus knew there would be crosses and he knew that we'd have to say no in all sorts of directions in life, including the sexual direction, when things are difficult. That's normal Christianity. And it's an absolute sellout when Christians think, well, you can't expect people not to say no in this direction or that direction. It's really, it's a treason. It's not following Jesus. Now, you know, this is an ecumenical prayer group and there'll be people here from different churches and in our different churches, to some extent, there may be somewhat different teaching about divorce or other things. But I think the following three points are things which we'll all agree on, I hope. I, I fail to see how any Christian can justify sex outside marriage, active homosexuality, and the widespread pornography of our society. It seems to me that you know, clear, all that is clearly at variance with the Gospel. And uh, just where we've got to stand up and be counted. You know, you know, we don't agree that it's good to expose children, oh, perhaps we do nowadays, alas, but I was going to say expose children on mountains, but we abort them instead. That's another area. But, uh, so there we are. I think we need to be quite clear about some of these things. You know. Now, it's one thing to be quite clear about the teaching of Jesus and to teach it and to believe in trying to uphold these standards. It's another thing to judge people in difficult situations, difficult problems, people who failed. And then I think we have the beautiful example of our Lord. There was a lady caught in adultery. Now he said, I don't condemn you. But he also said, go and sin no more. Now we can and should judge actions sometimes. But what we should never do is judge people. Judge not that you may not be judged. So we have to maintain Christian standards of act, of you know, what is, yes, that, that action is objectively wrong, but we're not called to judge people. We're all sinners, we all fail. You know, Jesus, you know, said, said in the case of that woman caught in adultery, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And that applies to all of us. So there we are, we've got to stand firmly by the principles of Jesus and teach those and do our best to practice them, but not judge people who fail to do so. And of course, you know, many people, I mean, in England today, many people have been brought up to believe that Christian morality in this field is nonsense, and they've been encouraged by, by their parents to go in for promiscuity and all sorts of things. So you see, 
uh, it's not a matter of judging people. I mean, the responsibility is often very, very much more uh, with parents or society around us, or people who've led people into difficulty or temptation. We've got to be very careful about judging people, but we've got to be firm on principles and standards. I think AIDS is a reminder that when mankind forsakes God's laws, it runs into trouble. Now that happens in other directions. If people start smoking 50 cigarettes a day, well they can run into cancer and all sorts of illnesses. It's a different sort of law. But you know, when mankind neglects God's law, mankind runs into trouble. And that's what's happening, I think, with AIDS. And God is, I think, bringing good out of evil. AIDS is certainly evil. And certainly we're not called to judge all the people who've got AIDS. But I believe that God is at work already bringing good out of, of evil there because many people are having a second thought about promiscuity. See, many people just assumed, many, many people of goodwill assumed, many sincere people have assumed that of course Christian teaching on sex was a lot of old-fashioned nonsense. And now many of those people will be thinking again. So, AIDS is not an unmitigated disaster. God is at work there, bringing good out of evil. I think we need, about sex and sexual morality, a balanced view. Do not turn chastity into the most important of all the virtues. It isn't. Faith, hope and love are more central. Humility is more important, more basic. Indeed, often people won't grow in chastity until they grow in those more basic virtues of faith, hope and love and humility. And I often find that when somebody's got a problem with chastity, the difficulty there, it's no good just trying for them to concentrate at that level. They've got to get down to the deeper roots of sin at the levels of faith and hope and, uh, hope, faith and, hope and love. So don't make chastity into the most important virtues. I think that was a danger among quite a lot of Roman Catholics about 30 or 40 years ago. You know, for 30 or 40 years ago, for many Roman Catholics, if you talked about sin and temptation, it was rather assumed you were talking about sexual sin. Well, we haven't got to do that. And also, many Christians have had a too negative attitude towards sex, as if sexuality was an evil thing. I mean, sexuality is basically a good thing. God created us. God created us as man and woman. I mean, you know, it's criticizing the Creator if we think sexuality is basically an evil thing. You know, I know a very, I heard of a very good Christian, you know, some generations, well, two generations back, a very devout Christian who loved children, loved having babies, but she said to her daughters, she said, you know, Sex is such a terrible thing. I think if we pray, God will find another way of doing it. <laughs> now, she was a very devout Christian. Uh, you see, but I mean, there was a sort of negativity sometimes in the, in the attitude towards sex, you know, which wasn't right. I mean, sex is basically a good thing. On the other hand, we are all wounded in our sexuality. All. And therefore, to live a truly pure life, to be pure in heart and sexually, doesn't just go by itself and requires effort and discipline. We are all wounded, just as we're all wounded in the field of pride, just as we're all wounded in the field of greed, just as we're all wounded in the field of fear and anxiety. 
So, uh, to avoid some of the negativeness and over-concentration on sexual sin you know, of the past, or one-sided concentration. On the other hand, I think now many people have gone, absolutely many Christians have gone to the opposite extreme. You know, some Roman Catholics have so reacted against the situation of 30 or 40 years ago that you would think the only field in which you can't sin seriously is sex. You've got to learn to say no in everything else, but because sex you can't expect that. And uh, I, as I've said, I think there can be a real sin out there. I mean, chastity is an important virtue. Lack of chastity is, can be very serious, and it can have devastating results in people's lives. Not something to be taken lightly. Not something to be ignored. And it really is important that Christians stand up to be counted in, on the teachings of Jesus about sexual morality. I think it would help if we could apply to chastity the same Christian common sense that we apply to other virtues. Now we're called to grow in chastity. We're called to grow in every other virtue. We shouldn't be surprised if we're not yet perfect in chastity. We're not yet perfect in other virtues. You know, when we sin in other ways, we know we've got to repent, and turn again to, and renounce as far as we can and ask God for that virtue and, and struggle on. Same with chastity. To apply the same Christian common sense to chastity, which we apply to humility, to faith, to love, to forgiveness. And that shows the need for ongoing repentance, the need for relying uniquely on the grace of God, the need of praying for the gift of the virtue, the need to seek progress, and not being too upset or surprised if we're not yet perfect. Not being too upset or surprised if we're not yet perfect. You know, the growth in chastity will involve the same spiritual warfare, the same struggles, the same failures, the same seeking God's grace as the struggle to grow in humility, to grow in faith, to grow in love. Now it's said in the, you know, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I want to say, I'm coming to the end now, a little about they shall see God. You know, I think unchastity clouds our vision of God and the things of God. I think that's true. A person who's not living a pure life and not trying to live a pure life, a chaste life, a person who's sort of given away at that level, I think it clouds their vision of God and the things of God all around. And I think on the other hand, that, you know, the chastity, or the effort to grow in chastity, that gives us a truer understanding of God and the things of God. You know, there's something beautiful about chastity, isn't there? It's a beautiful virtue. Now, much of our generation just laughs at chastity. You know, they think it's prudish, it's something for jokes, Mr. Mary Whitehouse, etc., etc. You know, thank God for that woman. And you know, what saddened me is when I've heard clergy criticizing that woman. And I've heard quite a lot of clergy criticizing that woman. Shame on them. Shame on them. But chastity is a beautiful virtue, and it's not something to be so, you know, ashamed of. It's not something it's not something unmanly, unwomanly. It's something of God. It's a virtue we should seek. It's a virtue we should pray for for ourselves. It's a virtue we should pray for for others. It's what we should be doing as disciples of Jesus trying to spread right standards of chastity 
amongst our country, among the people around us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God.